Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, bonus episode number nine. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. So, uh, you know, true to nerd journey fashion, you know, we have a part two, right? Now, it's just you and I talking, but somehow we we had to turn that into a part one and part two. And uh, last week in our uh, Christmas episode, uh, we talked about books that shaped my thinking. Um, and here we are in the new year, and we're going to talk to you about books that shaped your thinking. Yeah, and you'll see how uh, our brains are different and we enjoy listening to different things, but it all meshes together, hopefully, to create helpful things for people listening. So I guess if you're ready, we'll just go right through it, John. You feel good? Let's jump into it. All right. So new year coming. Maybe these are some new reads if you're out there looking for something to dive into. So these are in no particular order. I'll tell you my favorite at the end. Make sure I do that. Okay. So the first one on the list is Hope and Help for Your Nerves by Dr. Claire Weeks. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I get nervous, anxious about different things. It could be work. It could be family life, but it's happened to me for a number of years. It doesn't happen all the time. seems to come and go. And a gentleman that I went to church with, he, I guess, recognized this quality in me and gave me this book. And it talks about the the connection to mind and body and how, you know, if you, if you think something is going to happen to you, it could potentially happen to your body. It's, it's that powerful. But one of the, the interesting things inside the book is this idea of the temptation to choose the nearest confidant when you need to talk about something or when you're paralyzed and trying to make a decision. Sometimes we want to, reach out to whoever's nearest by to try and get advice. And it says, you know, resist that temptation when you get anxious or nervous and go to a trusted friend, somebody who is willing to listen to you and knows that you suffer from nervous illness and and talk to them instead. And I, I read that and I went, wow, I totally do that sometimes when I can't make a decision or I'm nervous and anxious. I just need to talk about it with somebody. And a lot of times it's whoever's closest. Has ever happened to you? Yeah. I, I think that that temptation is there for anybody who like works things out by discussing it with somebody else, right. By trying to reflect, you know, our situation and get an outside uh, point of view. But I, I think that's a very, you know, good point. Like if that is how you work things out, then there is this huge temptation to just, pick the closest person and talk to them about it and get their perspective. And that's not always the healthiest thing to do. I mean, I, I suppose that it's healthier than just internalizing it and, uh, and never talking to anybody. So at least a step in the right direction, but it, it's a good, uh, really interesting, uh, observation. And it's, you know, I'd highly recommend it. It's a short read, easy read. And 
you know, written by a doctor. And it really develops the idea that you can control this nervous problem, anxiety problem, and it's within your power. You know, it's not, it's not outside of your ability to get past it. So the next one on the list, I know I've mentioned this on a previous episode, pretty sure it was the area of destiny episode, which was 20 episode 20. That's what I'm going with. Double check me there. The real life MBA by Jack and Susie Welch. I was actually given this uh, at a conference and it has a career section and it talked about the area of destiny as it relates to career. What are you good at? What do you like to do? What's the intersection of that and what the market needs? But it also talks about this idea of work-life balance that we sometimes struggle with and they call it work-life choice. You know, we choose to work a certain amount. We choose to have fun a certain amount and that balance is different for different people. For some it's 50-50, it may be 70-30. It, it just depends on the person and, and what they want to get out of life. But it also talks a little bit about why careers end up stalling because you have nowhere to go exactly what we've talked about before. It talks about having an attitude problem. <laughs> of course, we, we've all met people that like that, or we've all had attitude problems at one point. But another great point that it makes in this book is when times are tough, when there are layoffs at a company, it's important for the company to retain the top talent so that they won't leave when it's a, when morale is low. And he even, Jack Welch even makes the point that you should offer some of the top talent a pay raise so that they won't leave, even if funds are, are short. And I just thought, wow, that's, that's a pretty interesting methodology. That just, that really stuck out to me. <laughs> that's, it's so interesting because, uh, yeah, that's the, the, the general problem. If you're trying to lay people off, you know, this is the observation is that the people who have, you know, who stand out and are excellent have the ability to leave the soonest right so if they feel like hey you know things are getting rough here those people can just leave all your top performers can leave because they have the ability to and you're stuck with all the people who are your lowest tier performers and then you know that's all you have left is your bottom 40 percent when what you wanted was the other way around it's also I would say like a, an interesting in, insight into how like executive management like views a workforce because uh, yeah, that's, that's, I don't know. That's very interesting. It's also interesting coming from Jack Welch, the, uh, you know, the modern uh, stack rank person fire the bottom 20% every single year. Yeah. That guy. <laughs> well, he also talks about loving people on the way in or on the way out, just like you loved them on the way in. I really like that concept. So it's, it's a little bit of both sides, a little bit of ruthless aggression and a lot of love at the same time. So yeah, it's not easy to be an executive. I'm sure not a sure. position I want to explore. <laughs> <laughs> Next on the list is range. Why generalists triumph in a specialized world by David Epstein. So he starts off by talking about the difference between Tiger Woods and Roger Federer and how Tiger was sort of born and bred to play golf his whole life taught from a young age and how Roger Federer played many different sports was never encouraged to pursue a specific one, but eventually settled on really liking tennis. 
And while he was what you might call a little bit of a later bloomer, he turned out to be a fantastic success in tennis. I mean, he's won more majors than any other man in history, at least to date, right? But the premise that David Epstein makes is that if you are a generalist and you have a wide range of experience, you can potentially become an even better specialist as a late bloomer than someone who is hyper-focused their whole life. They're concentrating on one area and they never get outside this area. And so he, he classifies the world as having two types of problems, kind problems or kind learning environments where everything is based on certain patterns and there's not a lot of difference in the patterns once you're exposed to all of them. And then these wicked learning environments where you can't necessarily match it to maybe a pattern you've seen within that same domain. Things may be unclear or incomplete and you know your, your experience in that domain may enforce a wrong lesson. And he gives example after example of people who were able to apply expertise from one area to solve a problem in a totally different domain because they had that experience. And we've talked about that so many times, so many stories of people we've interviewed already. You know, think Jimmy T. That's the one that jumps out to me. And the using the Minecraft community experience to go to the next level. And anyway, I I just really loved this book and everything about it. It was it was fantastic. So that's that's so interesting. The observation about um, you know cross domain uh, knowledge and experience because that's exactly what was in my book last week. Connections, right? It was the idea that you know, somebody's seen something in another domain or in another area, you know, and um, then they come across a problem, you know, and something else and they go, oh, well, I have all these lessons and tools from this other thing that I've done that I see, you know, could be applied here or they can add some, you know, incremental innovation. So that that's fascinating. It's also, I, I want to say David Epstein, I think he wrote The Sports Gene as well. And that was a really good book that I, I read Um and I'd completely forgotten about it. I'll have to go back and uh, reread that and see how much of an influence it's been on my my <laughs> thinking. I actually hadn't read his first one. Uh, you know, this was one of those audible recommendations. Like, okay, that sounds cool. I'll give it a shot. And it turned <laughs> out to be fantastic. And he gives stories about how, you know, the CEO of the Girl Scouts came to be CEO and it was never expected. And, the gentleman who came up with the idea for the Nintendo Game Boy and why they decided to stick with older technology and pushing the limits of it rather than going color when the when the Game Gear came out. Mm -hmm. And he talks about Vincent Van Gogh and how he did so many different things before he actually could paint well. Mm -hmm. Many different areas. It's just He tells it in a bunch of stories, and I, I think it's intriguing for just about anyone. So not specializing too early. Correct. Like a, like a really important thing. Yeah. Which is the exact opposite of what universities encourage us to do. They want us to pick a major. <laughs> well, how right. do I know? I've not tried all these things. Well, it's, it's also the exact opposite of how most sports work, right? Like, I mean, we talked last week about, you know, hockey in Canada and Sweden and Finland. 
in soccer in most places. Um, you know, they those players start when they're like four or five, six years old, you know, and, uh, you know, it's interesting also, I wonder how the idea of, um, you know, deliberate practice works in with that, you know, it's just, you know, you learn a bunch of different things um, in a, across different domains. So you have this level of expertise and, and then things like maybe make a little bit more sense. Oh, this is analogous to this other thing that I already learned are analogous to this other thing that I, I remember hearing about. So, you know, maybe a more willingness to try and, you know, quicker to uh, translate skills over. Yeah. Getting to the point of deep learning. Yeah. Across the board. Yeah. That's on the, the learning pyramid, uh, the highest level. What is it? Synthesis analysis and then synthesis, something like that. Uh, we'll have to look that one up, put it in the show notes, but yeah, definitely check that one out. That one was new this year. Uh, next one is Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. And the reason that you'll like this is because they actually mentioned in their intro that this is a complement to the tipping point, which you mentioned last week. Yeah. And, and they really dug into that idea of the stickiness factor. Why do ideas catch on, become sticky? Why are they memorable? And they give a bunch of different stories about these qualities that they found after analyzing a bunch of situations and the, the characteristics they go through are a simple idea, an unexpected quality, concrete. Do I know what it is? Can I relate to it somehow? The things I've seen, things I've experienced, is it credible? Is it emotional? What do people care about it? Is there a story around it? So those six things. And I mean, if we just dig into one real quick, the simple the simplicity of an idea, they talk about the idea of a commander's intent. They use Southwest Airlines. We are the low fare airline. You can use that to make any decision throughout the company as to whether we should add a particular service on a, on a plane. They tell a story about, well, we really think we should add this chicken salad on the particular flight from here to here. Was that going to make us stay the low fare airline? Because if it's not, then we don't need to do that. Hmm. So the idea is simple. It sticks with people and they were able to execute based on that. The whole taking that top level vision goal strategy and dispelling it throughout the organization. But uh, just a really good, good book, I thought. Very cool. Is that something that you can uh, apply in? And technology, do you think like uh, um, just using those principles to um, maybe make people understand why your project is more important um, and needs to get funded? Um, why, you know, the upgrade that you're pitching needs to be done? Why the, the technology transformation that you're saying should take place? You know, actually should take place. Yeah, very, very yeah. interesting. Great, great ways to incorporate that into selling something. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, selling a project, mm -hmm. selling a product, selling a project inside your company for innovation, just like you said. Yeah. Convincing someone else that you need to do something a certain way. Maybe it's a family member, friend. Sure. Yeah. Speaking of convincing Chip and Dan Heath also wrote another book called switch how to change when change is hard. And they talk about the specific elements that are required for someone to make 
a behavioral change. Hmm. And it comes down to three things. Imagine a giant elephant and someone riding that elephant. Okay. In, in order to make that elephant and the rider go in a different direction than they are now, change course, you have to direct the rider. That would be your logical self. Rational self. Is it logical to do these seven things? Whatever it is. Motivate the elephant. That's your emotional self. So your logical self can only control your emotional self for so long. If the elephant gets scared, wants to run away, there's not a whole lot the rider can do. So if your emotions get out of check, it's going to override anything logical. So you may know exactly what you need to do to get healthier or to get to the next level in your career, but you could potentially be completely emotionally exhausted and not able to do it because of that. And it just looks like you don't care. Oh, that's a really interesting analogy. Yeah. And then clear the path or shape the path. Not only do you need to go in the right direction, but how can you keep going in the right direction and support that in, that change? Put yourself in the right environment. For example, if you're trying to stop a bad habit, you know you want to be around people who won't encourage you to do that. If you're trying to stop eating sweets, <laughs> don't go to potlucks. <laughs> or you know you need to be around people who aren't gonna eat sweets around you all the time but that's a that's a simple example sure but again a lot of great analogies in there and multiple sub principles but good stuff very cool so we talked about on a previous episode that i had gotten hold of adrian cockcroft's reading list from devops days dallas Mm -hmm. so the next couple are from that reading list. So there's A Seat at the Table by Mark Schwartz. And then there's also War, Peace, and IT by Mark Schwartz. And after reading them both, they run together a little bit because there's a little bit of overlap. But A Seat mm-hmm. at the Table is more for the CIO and IT departments to really help drive the business? How can you work better with the business, be seen as valuable, be an innovation factory for the business? And then War, Peace, and IT is written more for business leaders that are not necessarily technology savvy, kind of about the same principles, how you should look at your technology department, their assets, things of that nature. But within these two books, he talks about how IT is often kept in a contractor control model. You know, we throw these requirements, somebody throws requirements over the wall and you need to build something that meets those requirements. Well, are they requirements or are they hypotheses? We think this is what we need to make this work. But imagine if, you know, you as a technologist could go and give some input and work with that person instead of just, oh, okay, I'll do that exactly how you asked me to. Let's be more agile in this in this phase. And they talk about the waterfall model versus the agile model and give the example of, you know, we may make this elaborate plan to build a new data center or go to the cloud or some big project, right? Let's say we're let's say it's going to be six months, twenty four months. I don't know, but you need to plan to not stick to the plan exactly. 
Because mm. if the plan can't ever change and something starts to go in the wrong direction, you can never recover. So you need to be flexible, you know, have a plan, of course, but you need to be able to redirect if something isn't working. And interestingly enough, he, he says that the only projects that should be terminated are the successful ones, not the failures. Hmm. How does that so, work? So you can improve upon something so much to where it's marginally not valuable to do any more improvement on this process because it's working so well. You've iterated so many times that you no longer need to apply funding there. But if, if something is going very bad, then you need to do something. You should have changed it way before you should have fixed it. You need to, you need to change course so that you can make that a successful project. The other, the thing that you said that really kind of resonates with me is the idea of a 24 month, uh, technology project, like in 24 months, none of us know what technology is going to look like. Exactly. Right? So the idea that we're going to know what we need, like business wise, 24 months from now is also a little bit silly. So I, I think, um, maybe I, I started reading this and there was the idea of like, if, if you, you know, um, apply a more, you know, DevOps or agile methodology where you're breaking your project into smaller, like deliverable chunks, then, and you're actually getting value from like the small sprint that you've done. Um, you know, and then you can evaluate whether that's actually the direction that's useful to the business, or if they look at it and say, yeah, well, we said that we wanted that, but now that we have it, like it's not as useful as we thought and, and what the actual requirements are now that we see something are slightly different or yeah, that you've delivered exactly what we've asked for, but the business environment has changed so much just even in the nine weeks since you've done the sprint that, um, that we need to redesign. But if you, if you do something and it's a, a project that lasts 24 months before you deliver anything, it's like you, there's all these resources that are sunk into it and you start to become like susceptible to the, uh, the um, sunk cost fallacy, right? Like, well, mm -hmm. we've already spent $5 million on this. I mean, we can't abandon it and just write off all that money. Right. As it, although, you know, if you, deliver something after eight weeks and then you go, Oh yeah, like this is good. Or, Ooh, no, this isn't anything like what I wanted. You know, let's just cut the entire project and, and do something completely different. I mean, that's just a little bit easier to um, tolerate and absorb as an organization. Yeah. And he gives the example of, you know, let's say you're building a new facility and it's not finished, but it's going to cost $10 million to finish it, but it would actually cost 5 million to build a completely new facility in a different location, mm -hmm. you know, assuming you're okay with the, the timeline difference, mm -hmm. maybe it's better to just abandon ship on this one. This is going to cost 10 million to finish and go spend the 5 million over here. So those fast feedback loops, get some successes or failures quickly so that you know how to adjust. Cause yeah. as you said, <laughs> If it's 24 months to failure, that's pretty bad. You haven't done anything to make progress <laughs> toward the goal. Right. If there's literally no deliverable until the very end of the project, I mean, that's kind of a, a project that is almost designed to fail. You know, the longer the timeline is, 
the more likely that project is to fail. Right. Like, right. So yeah, that's, that's a fascinating book. I, I started reading it, I think, and you know, I've never been a CIO, so I don't know how difficult it is to go into an organization that is using, you know, that contractor control model and being dictated projects and controlled via budget and to actually be able to turn around uh, an organization like that and do something different. Um, the, the tactical parts of how to do that would be really interesting to hear about. Yeah. And he actually wrote three books, the art of business value, which I haven't read yet. Shame on me. I have to put down the list. I, I ended up reading war peace and it first before a seat at the table. And then I read them in the opposite order. And I think that's better hmm. if you're in it right now, or have been in IT, I would read a seat at the table first and then War, Peace, and IT, and I think I think it will be more valuable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's just my advice, but probably want to go for all three. Next one on the list is called The Power of When by Michael Bruce. So this guy is a sleep psychologist, and the book is about chronotypes. You know, when are you as a human prone to sleeping? Are you someone who's more of an insomniac? and has trouble sleeping? Are you an early riser, uh, late riser, or maybe someone who's in the middle? And he classifies with four different animals. But he gives you some guidelines on how to choose which one is your chronotype by taking a quiz. And based on your chronotype, he paints the picture of the ideal time to do all kinds of stuff. So if you're an early riser, the ideal time to work out is not first thing in the morning. It is actually in the afternoon because your energy is going to start petering out. It's Mm. it's already going to peter out over the course of the day anyway. But if you work out in the afternoon, it revitalizes you and allows you to stay up later so that you can go to bed at the same time each day, get up at the same time each day. And of course that's the premise, right? Mm-hmm. Go to bed about the same time each day, get up about the same time each day. I, that's really, really hard to do, I think. Mm-hmm. But he even talks about when you should drink coffee, when you should you know, get outside, <laughs> when you should do very focused work, when you should go get up and talk to people and socialize. Mm-hmm. I mean, all kinds of stuff. I, I just thought it was really, really interesting. And then after reading that one, that's one of the reasons that I started moving my coffee intake back a little bit. Mm. So instead of drinking a cup of caffeinated coffee first thing in the morning, I'll drink decaf and then wait a few hours and then drink something with caffeine. Cause after you've had so much caffeine, it eventually doesn't help anymore, but it allows you to carry further into the day. I, I don't know if you read this article. He wrote an article. It was a follow-up, and he was advocating uh, cold brew coffee. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It does not make sense at all, cold yeah. brew. No, that's that's not true. I just wanted to poke, poke the bear. That's unscriptural coffee, John. <laughs> unscriptural? What? <laughs> just kidding. So... Next ones. Uh, if you if you've never heard of the Enneagram, it is a personality model. Think of it as a diagram with nine points. You get a particular number on the Enneagram. Based on that number, it describes your personality type. There are other personality types, but 
this particular one I, I found very intriguing and there are quizzes that you can take to figure out what you are. But there are two books specifically that I read about the Enneagram. The first one is called The Road Back to You. And it really talks about like for each number, what is that number like when they're healthy in times of stress, if they're somewhere in the middle of happy and stressed and what is their deadly sin? Because every number has a deadly sin that's their downfall or their biggest fault that they need to work on. Like one of the numbers is an eight and their biggest fear is being vulnerable. It's really hard for them to, to be vulnerable because they think that people view that as weakness. And it's just fascinating to, to hear about the personality types. And when you read this, you you can kind of see some of the people you know fitting into these numbers pretty easily. While it isn't a perfect system for everything, right? It is an interesting model that can give you some, some good ideas. Now, the path between us takes the road back to you to the next level, and it really talks about, okay, here are some stories about people who fit into this number. And here are some tips. If you are a one through nine, here's how you can interact with the other numbers in the best way. I I thought that was pretty helpful, pretty interesting, you know, because this particular number has a problem with X, Y, Z. If you communicate with them in this way, you'll have a healthier, better relationship. I, I liked it. Just that's, fascinating stuff. That's really cool. There's this um idea. I don't remember exactly where it came from. I think uh, maybe I read about it in like a neurolinguistic programming book. Um, and it was called, uh, oh, the phrase was, the map is not the territory. And the idea is that a- any model of a thing is an imperfect description of the real life world, right? So all of these like personality type things um, and I think we talked about a couple, uh, are imperfect descriptions, but might give some insight the way that a map might get insight, give insight about the world without being like an actual real representation of the world. Um, so that's fascinating. Yeah. And I think Kelly Schrader mentioned some things about strengths finder helped him right when he was, when he was needing some advice in those areas. Next one on the list is Chasing Excellence by Ben Bergeron. Now, full disclosure, this is a story about the CrossFit Games. It didn't make me want to do CrossFit. It did make me want to work out, though, Mm. I have to say. But it didn't convert me to the CrossFit way of life, necessarily. I, I liked the fact that it was told through a story. But Ben Bergeron basically says that, you know, when you go to the CrossFit Games, you have to be better than a world-class athlete in order to separate yourself from the competition because everybody is already world-class. And the real separator are character traits. And so when he coaches his athletes, he teaches them the character traits they need to be better than world-class. And he goes through and tells the story of the CrossFit Games and talks about the character traits that are present in his athletes. And he talks about something very similar to the thinking in bets idea. You know, if you make a goal that's defined by a result, it's going to lead to disappointment, right? But he talks about making goals that are more related to effort that can be attained. 
you know, getting to the point where I can do, I don't know, a hundred sit-ups instead of winning the sit-up competition. And one of my favorite things in there is he talks about something called the process. We had an episode, Process Over Outcomes, episode 19, one of my favorite ones. But he quotes Nick Saban, and it basically says that if you think too far ahead, you're not going to be able to focus on right now on the thing that you can actually control. What can you control? What can you influence this second, this moment? Focus on that, and you'll be doing what you need to do, the task at hand. And I think that's super important. It's not that you shouldn't look to the future or plan for it, but sometimes you really have to focus on the right now in order to take that pressure off and succeed at what you're doing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that that reminds me of the the two modes of, of thinking, right? The experiential versus storytelling. If you're in the moment, if you're in the middle of something important and what you're doing is storytelling about the future saying, well, if I screw this up, then this will happen. If I'm really good at this and execute correctly, then this other thing will happen. You can be so caught up in that storytelling that you are not experiencing the thing right then and there and therefore not able to do your best right then and there. Yeah, that's a great point. He also talks about how a lot of people visualize success Visualize giving the perfect presentation, visualize making that long putt, hitting the fairway, ace, getting an ace in a tennis match. But he talks about, don't just visualize success. You need to visualize failure to prepare yourself for any scenario. Obviously that's super complicated, but if you only prepare for eventual success, you won't really know how to react to the failures. So I thought that was a good point. That's the idea that if you only plan for everything going perfectly and things don't go perfectly, then you haven't, you haven't really prepared yourself for ultimate success because you need to be, have a, a plan for, you know, if like, Oh, you're, you're, you're doing this, like, you know, run and your shoe comes off. Okay. How do I recover from that? Or, you're doing pull-ups and your hand slips. Okay, how do I recover from that? That that idea. Yeah. Or you're trying to do a live demo and you can't get your Wi-Fi to work. Right. Got it. That definitely didn't happen to me yesterday, John. Well, I was in the office, uh, I want to say on Wednesday, and uh, my hand slipped during a pull-up. And that really, I hadn't, okay, that, that didn't happen. But um, I mean, that that presentation thing, that sounds a lot more likely to happen. So um, I can certainly imagine that, you know, as technology practitioners, we have to plan for things to not go perfectly, right? And so our preparation for something has to prepare for the most likely things that, you know, could slip us up. And then maybe even just recovering from, you know, something unexpected happening, like, you know, just in the moment being uncomfortable and being able to recover from the unexpected thing. Yeah. And who knew they had pull-up bars in the cubicles at Google's offices? Uh, that's news to me. Yeah. There's, there's walking desks, um, which you can use. Nobody has like a dedicated walking desk. You can go to this like communal area and there's a desk with like a treadmill in front of it. There's also a pull-up desk. Um, so uh, no, that's not true. Um, the walking <laughs> desk thing is true, but the pull-up desk is not. 
Yeah, that's too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Next one on the list is called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And this one's actually a very good one as well. I can't remember who exactly said to read this. I think it was on a team call uh, internal to VMware. But this was actually written by a guy who was an FBI negotiator. Hmm. And he starts off the story talking about how he went to some classes on negotiation at a university and using his own tactics, he was able to beat and out negotiate everybody. And he talks about how he was able to, you know, he worked on a suicide hotline for a while and before he became a negotiator, but they built this entirely new curriculum just for the FBI for hostage situations and it and it worked out really well. So he gives he gives a lot of nuggets in the book, but some of the ones that really helped me the most were this this idea of labeling situations. You know, it seems like that upset you, John. You know what I mean? Instead of it just, it's a safer way to say it. You know, you're labeling someone's emotion, labeling the situation, allowing them to, to tell you if it's right or wrong, but it's sort of non-threatening and disarming sure. at the same time. Sure. And it makes the person evaluate in the moment whether or not that label applies to them. Yes. And it allows you to, even though you may not understand everything, that's happening in their brain. You're trying to be empathetic and show them a little bit of respect. Sure. But mm-hmm. he, he talks about all sorts of things, how he negotiated getting a truck for $30,000 cash when it was $36,000 in the dealership lot. <laughs> and he talks about, you know, how somebody negotiated the price of a, it was either a condominium or an apartment or house. But he gives a lot of real life situations that are outside the FBI, but also a lot of descriptions of situations while inside the FBI. It's just really good. I've used a lot of these tactics just in personal interactions with people, and they definitely work. Oh, that's doesn't really mean cool. I can. That doesn't mean that I can totally manipulate someone else with all this, but it's. I think it's a helpful in in the course of regular communication. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to. Uh... I'll have to read that and I'll put that on my list right away. Yeah. And the last two on my list uh, are written by Elihu Goldratt. The first one is The Goal. So this is about the theory of constraints and lean manufacturing. This is the book that you should have read before you read The Phoenix Project and The Unicorn Project because this is, you know, in my opinion, this is where DevOps came from because it was applied to manufacturing first. And if you read the Phoenix project. They talk about lean principles and the goal. And it's just a, it's a really good book. When I worked at the manufacturing company, they had us read it and fantastic. Uh, He also read, he also wrote another one called critical chain, which applies those lean manufacturing theory of constraints type principles to project management, which, you know, if you're in project management or if you aren't, I still highly would recommend reading both of those if you have the time and then go and read the Phoenix project and the unicorn project. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I want to read uh, that critical chain right away. I'll, I'll, I'll add that to my list too. But I remember, I want to say that um, like critical, critical path theory is like, is like kind of like 
the gold standard in uh, project management. And his theory, this critical chain theory, is a little bit different from that. Yeah, if memory serves, well, actually, both of these books are written as narratives, much like the Phoenix Project and Unicorn Project. I didn't mention that, but they're Mm -hmm. told as stories, teaching you these concepts. And if I remember right, the the critical chain one starts with, okay, we're going to form a think tank and we're going to, you know, we need to launch this project product in six months instead of 18 months. How do we do it? You know, we'll give you what you need. We just need you to figure it out. And then it goes on from there. Very, very cool. Yeah. Oh, that's really exciting. I mean, I had, you know, a bunch of different books that you mentioned there that I want to add to my uh, holiday reading list and uh, in my, my 2020 list. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do uh, two books a month in 2020. So uh, nice. Uh, maybe I can get through this a little bit uh, faster than I thought. Sure. That makes sense. So I'm going to go ahead and give you my favorite before we wrap, John. Oh, good. I was just about to ask you. So my favorite was Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Hmm. And I think it has to do with the fact that I've worked in different disciplines. You know, I was in education. I was an analyst. I worked in IT. I'm an SE now. So it just felt like home. It doesn't mean like I'm a super specialized, awesome person, but... As I'm reading about this, I'm like, oh, okay, yes. Maybe at some point I need to go do something totally different again, and then it'll only make me better. Mm-hmm. So I, the stories, uh, you know, it had one about mathematics education in there, and uh, <laughs> of course that, that hits me in the heart, you know. <laughs> but it, it's just fascinating. I mean, they're all great, but, I, but that one's my favorite. Very, very cool. So before we uh, go, uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that we're starting to set up like a Nerd Journey bookshelf where, you know, the books that we've mentioned here um, and the books that our guests mention, we kind of put in a central page. Um, so it's a little bit easier to search and then go, you know, browse, uh, you know, if there's a, um, a Wikipedia page about the book, uh, then... Uh, you can find that and, you know, Amazon, Google Books, et cetera. Um, the difficult thing about that is, uh, well, the easiest way to do it is with the uh, plugins um, that WordPress has in their marketplace, which in general are pretty free. But uh, maybe the downside of that is that they all add an affiliate link of the person who wrote the um, the plugin if you don't have your own. So uh, I think we're going to, go and set up an affiliate link uh, just so that we're not um, funding somebody else. If we, you know, if people find it useful, then, you know, maybe we'll, uh, you know, support uh, the plugin author uh, on our own. Um, That said, like, you know, we're not like in this podcast game to, uh, to make money via Amazon affiliate links. Uh, So I think any money that does come in will probably, uh, fully disclose, you know, what it is that we're going to do with it. Like just probably in general paying for, uh, the, the hosting of the website. Um, and then, you know, if we can amass a a war chest, uh, then maybe we'll have the freedom to go to user groups and, and maybe do some sessions in places where our employers won't fund our travel and, uh, and, uh, um, 
staying in hotels and, and things like that. So uh, with that in mind, uh, if you see a, a new page on the, uh, the Nerd Journey website, or if you see uh, links, uh, affiliate links in the descriptions, that's why. Um, we don't want that to be a secret. Uh, again, it's, it's not because we're trying to make money. It's, uh, it's just kind of like a, eh. so somebody has to have this affiliate link. There's no way to do it without affiliate links, except through like a whole lot of manual effort. So, uh, that's why. Um, but that being said, I think we're ready to wrap up or right, Nick, uh, was there anything else before we get out of here? Well, speaking of affiliations, John, there's no better program to be affiliated with than the John White School of Mentoring. If you need more book recommendations or you want to put more money in the kitty to fund different things, just like this uh, affiliate link will, reach out to Adner Journey for pricing and packaging information, and perhaps we can bring the John White School of Mentoring to you. Yeah, I, I do want to note that uh, one of the things we're starting is an affiliate program for the uh, mentoring school. So if you want to find out about that, uh, reach out to Nick Cordy, and he will set you up with an affiliate link. Just refer all your friends. All right. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Okay, farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at the Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios and happy reading. Happy reading.